Well, howdy y'all. Welcome to episode number 26 of Once Upon a Time in Texas. I'm your host and producer, Michael Mitchell. For those of y'all that follow the podcast and listen to me, thank y'all for so just so much for taking your hat off and sitting a spell and listening to me tell stories. Um, have a lot of fun doing this. Of course, I learn a lot along the way too. And I appreciate y'all uh, listening to my little podcast. Uh, I mean, I know there's no music to it and it's just me. Sometimes you hear me cough or the kids walk in. You know, it's just raw uh, me <laughs> kind of popping up. And seeing, you know, wherever this takes us. Uh, I tend not to think about these podcasts a whole lot. Um, Pretty much like I did in school, I just kind of look around and see what inspires me. And then normally I'm scrambling on uh, Tuesday before a post on Wednesday. I'm like, oh, crap. I got a podcast I need to get done tomorrow. But, you know, I'm always looking for that inspiration. I guess, you know, my grandfather was a preacher. And he said that he was much the same way when it came to preaching the Lord's Word on Sunday that he kind of got inspired throughout the week. And then typically on a Saturday night, he was scrambling to write out what he needed to talk about. So (laughs) I I guess, you know, I just take after my grandfather. Um, Maybe I come up with the procrastination on my own. Maybe I get it from my mother. Who knows? So uh, I don't know. I I had somebody ask me this week, um, hey, do you have any merchandise like shirts and hats or something? And I was like, well, no, not really. <clears throat> you know, I've got a logo that a friend of mine did and they said, you know, you, you really ought to look at, you know, doing some merchandise, you know, at least putting it out there for people that listen. They might like the logo and think it's kind of cool. So I don't know. Y'all shoot me a message, you know, find me on Facebook or get on the Once Upon a Time in Texas uh, Facebook page. Um, you know, if you have my phone number, shoot me, shoot me a text, something. Let me know what you guys think if I started putting a little merchandise out there. So uh, this week, I'm going to start off with a little story of our own. Uh, my family and a few friends, um, well, most of my family, took a trip out to Cloudcroft, New Mexico. My oldest daughter is in uh, West Virginia at the Boy Scout National Jamboree, and she's having a ball. And so the rest of us were like, well, she's having fun. We ought to go out to Cloudcroft, which we go out every year, pretty much. <clears throat> and we ride ATVs around in the mountains. It's, it's usually beautiful. And uh, when we left here in Texas, it was early in the morning and it was already about 90 degrees. And then we arrived at the 9,000 foot mark at Cloudcroft, New Mexico. It was 93 degrees. And so it kind of sucked. However, it did warm up here, um, you know, on our trip out. It only got up to like 103 or 104. So 93 was certainly cooler, but uh, man, not as cool as what we're used to. So... Um, we had a lot of fun. We went up a trail. We probably should not have gone up. It was much harder, um, than we were expecting. Uh, one four wheeler my son was on, uh, kind of went down the mountain with him on it about 30 or 40 feet, ran into a tree and I guess bucked him off. Uh, and then one of our other four wheelers kind of got caught in a ditch area and rolled over. Uh, and then my wife, uh, same thing happened. She rolled over on her four wheeler. we all wear safety equipment. We're very careful for the most part, you know, when things happen. And so all this happened pretty slow, except for my son running into the tree, but he doesn't do anything slow. But, uh, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. And then, uh, we were all sore as heck the next day. So we took some time off 
And then the third day we went riding again and it was a beautiful day up until the last 15 minutes of the ride heading back to the trucks to load up and up pops this wonderful little hailstorm. <laughs> and it dropped hail on us like nobody's business. I'll bet you there were four inches of hail um, all over the place. Uh, it was so slick. The trucks, I had to put my truck in the four-wheel drive just to keep on the main road. Uh, it was crazy. <clears throat> anyway, we ended up hiding under the ATV trailer and all that. But it, yeah. where am I going with this? That's a great question to whoever just asked that since I can't hear y'all out there. On the drive out um, from Wichita Falls, we go through Seymour, Guthrie, you know, Lubbock, and Plains, Texas, you know, on our way out to New Mexico. And there's a bunch of other little towns in there too. So on the way out, my son and, uh, and foster daughter noticed that uh, some of the ranches that we passed, and I used to work for the Boy Scouts and covered a lot of those counties, and so I knew a little bit of the history about some of these ranches, and that got me thinking about the, the large and historical ranches here in Texas. And I thought, hmm, as I often do, and I know it's me because I sound like me in my head, hmm, I ought to do a podcast about famous or large or historical ranches in Texas. And of course, you know, the other part too is one of the things people think about when they think about Texas is cattle and ranches because, you know, everybody in Texas owns cattle and everybody in Texas uh, has a ranch. Apparently that's what some people think. So anyway, here we are. We're doing this podcast on ranches and it's really some interesting history. So before we jump into it too much, I always want to mention our sponsor, which is me and American Mortgage Company. I know that there are tons of people moving to and in the great state of Texas, and I know a lot of you guys know these people. So let me help them out. I am an independent mortgage loan originator working with American Mortgage Company. We help people finance their dream homes right here in the big, great state of Texas. And I know that mortgages aren't fun, but man, I sure try pretty hard to keep them, uh, keep the whole process easy. Just got a young couple approved today to go buy a house and they were just tickled pink and I am too. So I even got to call the realtor and tell him, hey, take these people shopping. And he said, yes, sir. So it was awesome. Uh, they just, they actually turned their application in while I was driving back from Cloudcroft, New Mexico. So that's a pretty quick turnaround getting them pre-qualified. So again, if you know somebody moving to or in Texas, send them my way. I'd love to help them. They can find me at the Michael Mitchell, T-H-E MichaelMitchell.com. Let me help them out. Remember when you work with me, I sell dreams, not mortgages. <laughs> All right. So let's get to this, uh, the meat and potatoes of this here podcast. Um, it's not really a crazy ride today. This is going to be kind of a mellow ride today. So let's jump into it. Nine Texas ranches, and I'll bet you you've heard of a couple of them. So number one, the King Ranch. And I'm not talking about the pickup, although my dad and I both have King Ranch pickups, and we do love them. Um, the Ford pickups got their name from the giant King Ranch here in Texas. They do have the running W brand all over the trucks, and, uh, and they're dang good trucks, I must say. So like I said, the first stop takes us to the King Ranch. It is headquartered in Kingsville, Texas. Uh, the King Ranch is the largest ranch in the United States. It is currently at 825,000 
1,000 acres. <clears throat> that makes it larger than the state of Rhode Island, which I think a lot of things are bigger than Rhode Island. If somebody's listening from Rhode Island, I'm sorry, I'm not making fun of your state. I've just never met anybody that was from there uh, or lived there. Uh, until recently, we did have one of our scout leaders that is with the Air Force, and he's getting stationed in Rhode Island. I was like, oh my God, thank you. 44 years I've waited to know somebody that went to Rhode Island. Um, it's also larger than the country of Luxembourg. That's a big ranch. So uh, it is mainly a cattle ranch, but it's also produced the Triple Crown winning horse uh, racehorse, Assault. So here's a little bit of history, and, and some of these I give a little more history than, than I do on others, just because, you know, some of the stuff's hard to find. <clears throat> the ranch is located in South Texas between Corpus Christi and Brownsville, and kind of adjacent to Kingsville, although, hello, it's the King Ranch, and the closest town is called Kingsville. It was founded in 1853 by Captain Richard King and Gideon K. Lewis. Uh, it includes portions of six Texas counties, uh, most of Kleeberg and much of Kennedy with portions extending into Brooks, Jim Wells, um, Nueces, and uh, Willisey counties. So that's all down in the uh, kind of in the bottom. The ranch does not consist of one single contiguous plot of land, and that is important because that's going to come up again here in a minute, but rather it's four large sections called divisions. So the divisions are Santa Gertrudis, which is after a cow, and I think actually the cow may be, may have been bred there on the King Ranch. I don't remember. The Laurels, the Encinos, or I'm sorry, the Encino, and the Norius. Only the first two of the four divisions border each other, and that border is actually relatively short. So it's actually one big umbrella ranch, but it's split up into four sections. The ranch was designated a National Historical Landmark in 1961. The Texas Cowboy Hall of Fame inducted the ranch in 2019. That's pretty cool. An, an entire ranch gets inducted. It was the very first ranch to be added to the National Register of Historical Places uh, in October of 1966. And because of the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, which was also signed on the same day. So it went on the National Historical Register the same day that National Historical Preservation Act went in. So that's kind of cool. The King Ranch really is an interesting history. And you guys should get on and read about it because, man... There, there's just so many cool things that happened there and how it formed just kind of by happenstance. It is truly a frontier empire. Um, they've implemented a lot of innovative techniques, such as controlled grazing and water development. Um, its success not only has influenced the way ranching is done in Texas, but has also left really a lasting impression on the entire American ranching history. <clears throat> it's, it's just, it's really cool. And if you get on, they've got a bunch of cool stuff for sale. Um, they've got a good marketing person, that's for sure. <clears throat> All right. The next one is actually no longer a ranch, but it has some really important history. Um, so next, we're going to move on to the XIT Ranch, which was actually known for a long time as the largest feasible cattle ranch in the world. It was established in 1885 and operated until 1912. So it's been gone for, you know, 111 years or so. <clears throat> in 
it at one time was a three million acre ranch. That's right. I said million with an M and was the result of a deal between the Texas government uh, and Charles Goodnight um, to help fund construction of the Texas state capitol. So I know Goodnight was involved, although Goodnight is going to come up on another ranch later. The ranch runs, y'all ready for this? 200 miles north and south along the western panhandle on the border with New Mexico. And it varied between 20 and 30 miles wide east and west. And so you know that straight line you see up in the panhandle? Most of that was the XIT ranch right on that state line. The state straight line. How about that? So... Obviously, it's a massive ranch. It stretched through 10 counties in Texas. And at its peak, regularly handled 150,000 head of cattle. One fact that I did find out recently was what the XIT stood for. I, I didn't know. It actually stands for 10 in Texas. So the X um, was the Roman numeral 10, or is the Roman numeral 10, <clears throat> and it stands for 10 in Texas because it covers 10 counties. So let's talk a little more history, though, because some people know a little bit about the XIT. So located on the western edge of Texas, we've already gone through that, Texas Panhandle. This was anciently the territory of the Carecho Indians and the Teus. Uh, in 1879, the 16th Texas Legislature appropriated 3 million acres of land to finance a new state capital. That's right. So they set aside 3 million acres of land to build the Capitol building. So in 1882, in a special legislative session, the 17th Texas legislature struck a bargain with Charles B. and John V. Farwell of Chicago, under which a syndicate led by the Farwells which was mostly British investors, agreed to build the new Texas capital in Austin and to accept the 3 million acres of panhandle land as payment. So they built the capital and they got the land. It's that simple. Uh, the ranch was stretched across all uh, or portions of the counties of Dallum, Hartley, Oldham, Deafsmith, Palmer, Castro, Bailey, Lamb, Cochrane, and Hockley counties. The total expense for the Capitol building was about $3.75 million, which you got to think, in the 1880s, that was a load of money. <clears throat> and the syndicate company ended up paying out about $3.2 million. So I don't know where the other $500,000 came from. I guess the state of Texas at the time kicked it in. So the XIT Ranch was an economic powerhouse for years. Like I said, they had 150,000 cattle um, the demise did come with some droughts and falling cattle prices, although the original plan for the XIT ranch was colonization, as the British tend to do, apparently. Um, their thought was they were going to colonize this land and sell it and colonize it through farming. And the cattle business, interestingly enough, was just kind of a temporary, let's get something out there and start making a few dollar bills back. <laughs> so... It's, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, Texas is known for its cattle, and these guys were planning on, um, you know, doing it just as a temporary deal. But the legacy it left behind is really a testament to the sheer scope and ambition of this early Texas ranch. 
Just incredible. All right. So ranch number three, and you guys may know a little bit about this. It is the Four Sixes. And uh, their brand is the 6666. Um, so it brings us out to Guthrie, Texas, which we went through last week in the Four Sixes. It was founded in 1870 by Captain Samuel Burke Burnett. Now, this is the guy that the town of Burke Burnett, Texas was named after. And there's a lot of people around here that don't know that. Burke Burnett was actually named after a guy named Burke, first name, Burnett, last name. <laughs> so anyway, Burke Burnett, the guy, is also kind of famous for uh, participating in taking President Teddy Roosevelt on the famous wolf hunt uh, in the big, ha uh, big pasture area of southern Oklahoma, just north of where I live here in Wichita Falls. This hunt um, led Roosevelt to sign into being the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge. That was one of his at last acts, I think, as president, if I remember right. I love Teddy Roosevelt, everything about him. I mean, the guy was just a real historical badass. People ask me, you know, if you go back in time and sit and talk to anybody, who would it be? And lots of people say, you know, Jesus or, you know, Gandhi or whatever. I'm like, Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, I don't even want to have lunch with him. I just want to go on a couple of his trips. So anyway, back to the Four Sixes. It's named after the unique cattle brand that Burke Burnett chose. This iconic ranch is renowned for its horse breeding program and associated with legendary cowboys like Tom Blazingame. Now let's look into a little more history. The main section of the ranch is located near the town of Guthrie, Texas in King County. It spans 350,000 acres. The main ranch house is right off U.S. Highway 82. You can see it. You drive right past it, and I'll tell you why you might want to. Um, the Dixon Creek section spans 108,000 acres of land in Carson and Hutchinson counties. Um, the Dixon Creek runs through this section of land uh, of the ranch near Panhandle, Texas. It was officially founded in 1900 after Burke bought it from the Louisville Land and Cattle Company. Legend has it that he won the ranch from a card game where his cards were four sixes. Hmm. Four sixes ranch? I don't know. However, uh, Burke Burnett's descendants have denied this folklore tale, but I don't know. It sounds really good. Um, they say instead the name comes from the first herd that he raised on the ranch, which was just branded four sixes because I guess it was easy. Um, Burke Burnett raised purebred Herefords and Durham cattle, which won national prizes at livestock shows all over the U.S. He also bred purebred quarter horses. In 1918, 2,000 head of cattle were killed in a blizzard. And so that, that kind of almost left him destitute, but three years later, he hangs on, oil is found on the ranch, and then the ranch turns into a very profitable enterprise, as it often does. <clears throat> After his death in 1920, which he died in 1920, oil was found on it in 21, so that kind of sucks, the ranch was inherited by his granddaughter. So Anne Valiant Burnett Tandy, um, she purchased a horse named Gray Badger II and Hollywood Gold. They were both show horses, which lived on the ranch. By 1936, there were 20,000 Hereford cattle on the ranch. 
In the 60s and 70s, the barn on the ranch was used in advertisements for Marlboro, you know, the cigarette brand, the Marlboro Man. In 1975, scenes from the movie Macintosh and TJ were also filmed on the ranch. And uh, we'll talk about more filming here in a second. In 1980, the ranch was passed on to Burnett's great-granddaughter and Winfor Marion and his great-great-granddaughter, Wendy Grimes. Marion co-managed the ranch with her fourth husband, John Marion. They bred Brangus cattle, which is a cross between Brahma and Angus, uh, along with Herefords, and produced what they called the Black Baldy cattle. Um, and it's a cattle breed that's resistant to cedar flies, which is kind of cool. They also had 100 brood mares, so female horses. Um, and they're, uh, I guess they're still bred. Uh, they still breed about 100 brood mares every year, produce horses. As of December 3rd, 2020, the ranch was being sold. In accordance to the will of owner Ann Burnett Marion, who had died in February of 2020. I'm sorry, February. Yeah, February of 2020. So December of 2020 was listed on the market. And it was for sale for a total of $347.7 million. Now, for those of y'all that are paying attention, I can't finance that. That would, you know, I probably could figure it out, though. Um, but anyway... The, uh, in May of 2021, a buyer's group bought it, and the buyer's group, kind of the head of it, was led by screenwriter Taylor Sheridan, and they purchased the ranch. Now, Taylor Sheridan, does anybody know that name? Think about it for a second. He's currently best known for the hit TV series Yellowstone. That's right. You don't watch Yellowstone? You're crazy. It's a great show. He has had uh, several spinoffs, um, 1883 and 1990 or 1923, which are origination stories of Yellowstone. It's pretty cool. And some of the filming locations for Yellowstone, 1883 and 1923, are on the 4-6's ranch, you know, when they're not filming up in Montana. So it's kind of cool. Um, they had some other stuff. They've got some paintings depicting portions of the ranch. Um you know, by some famous painters, Tom Ryan and Mondell Rogers. Uh, a barn from the ranch has been moved to the National Ranching Heritage Center in Lubbock. Um, but the Four Sixes Ranch to this day still embraces the rich Western heritage and has continued to thrive through generations and now on to new owners. They're really destriving. Uh, destriving. That sounds good. Yeah, continues to strive. So it's got uh, distinctive red branded uh, livestock barns and everything. And it's just really become uh, a synonymous of quality horse breeding and ranching excellence. Um, the four six is kind of a big deal. So ranch number four, let's jump to this one. This is called the Y.O. Ranch. Takes us down to Mountain Home, Texas, which is kind of near Kerrville. Um, it's a storied property nestled in the breathtaking hill country of Texas. It was established by a guy named Charles Schreiner in 1880. This ranch became famous for, uh, for being bison-free, which I'm not really fond of, uh, and now it offers prime hunting opportunities to wealthy Texans and even celebrities. So before we get into much of the history of this, I would like to make a note that I actually worked on the Y.O. Ranch for a short time while I was in college. 
I was doing my internship there because they had an adventure camp on the property. So this is now a 50,000 acre ranch, or at least was when I did my internship. It was much bigger before. Anyway, I was getting my degree in leisure services management from Oklahoma State University. All right, has everybody done laughing? That's right. I said leisure services management, which is just a short way for saying outdoor recreation, experiential education, and nonprofit management. So I'd actually put my application kind of out there looking for an internship. And uh, a Boy Scout council from Alaska called. Anchorage. No, I'm sorry, not Anchorage, Juno. And my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, fiance, I guess, said no. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to Kerrville, Texas. There we go. So, uh, you know, what I can really say is this is really a cool place. And I learned a lot. They have a huge amount of exotic animals and it's really cool. So, if you guys are still hanging on, just know this podcast is going to go a little longer because there's just really some cool history here. All right, so while the history spans over 140 years, the story of the Y.O. kind of parallels the history of Texas. Founded in 1880 by a French immigrant turned Texas Ranger known as Captain Charles Schreiner. Uh, he was an enterprising businessman and he purchases over 500,000 acres for this cattle venture. And the Y.O. brand was part of the transaction. So when he bought it, he bought the brand. Since most of the cattle on the land were already, you know, already had that brand, he just kind of kept it. Since then, the YO has become part of the Shriner family legacy and today has become a tradition in its own right uh, as a part of Texas lore and culture. So, you know, the, the founding of the YO took place during the time of cattle drives and hard living and hard work. Captain Schreiner made his fortune with a diverse set of businesses. He did uh, mercantile, banking, and then, of course, cattle. Um, wild herds of Longhorn were rounded up in the post-Civil War period and driven up the Western Trail to Dodge City, Kansas. This helped uh, Captain Schreiner fund his ranching enterprise. The Wyo survived World War I, the Great Depression, screwworm infestations, and severe drought, and was passed down through two generations to Charles III, uh, affectionately known as Charlie Three, who I knew. Uh, I met him several times there when I worked there. Um, they have three kind of modernized ranching operations and uh, demonstrated a lot of foresight by introducing exotic animals and you know on the ranch in the 1950s and it kickstarting kind of a hunting and tourism uh, craze really on this famous ranch. Uh, and this was so cool because I got to learn so much about these animals. But a lot of the exotic animals that are on the land today, uh, axis deer, sicka, uh, fallow deer, black buck deer, I'm sorry, black buck antelope. Then they've got other African species um, in, a large, in a large pasture where they have guided tours. And so they have things like wildebeest, um, pure David's deer, the famous Y.O. giraffes, Um and so they like to be hand-fed. They also have Bisa oryx and Scimitar horned oryx. Um, the Scimitar horned oryx are kind of the red, uh, orange-necked animals. And I actually got to bottle feed one for a long time. And so then, of course, they've got all the native, you know, white-tailed deer, wild turkey, and javelina. And their, their hunting operations are just incredible. And then, of course, the wildlife tourism is pretty good, too. So 
It appears now, though, that the 50,000 acres of ranch that I spent time on is being cut up and sold. It's, it's really sad to see this, but I'm sure the, the Shriner family is doing it for good reasons. I think there were four brothers then that were kind of trying to manage it. Um, but long story short, the Wild Ranch is really a true Texas gem. Uh, its wildlife conservation efforts have made it popular for ecological tourist destinations. I still think they do that. But it's also still a working cattle ranch, too, so it's, it's really cool. All right, so number five of nine. And, yep, I'm sorry we're running long, so I'll speed this up a little bit. <clears throat> number five is the Pit Pitchfork Ranch, which we actually passed on the way to New Mexico, too. So this is near uh, Dickens, Texas, in Dickens County, which my wife hates because I always make jokes uh, about the name of that and... She thinks they're inappropriate, and I'm not going to tell them here, but I'm sure you guys can imagine where jokes like Dickens would come from. Um, and this is the Pitchfork Ranch. It was founded in 1883 by a guy named C.T. Herring. Uh, it's survived through the changes brought by the railroad and uh, witnessed significant shifts from cattle to the oil industry. The, the short history of the ranch was taken directly from their website. And it says in December of 1883, the Pitchfork Land and Cattle Company was incorporated with 52,000 acres of land in central west Texas and a foundation herd of 90, I'm sorry, 9,750 cattle. Unlike most ranches established during the great cattle boom of the 1880s, the Pitchfork survived episodes of drought uh, and cattle, you know, depression prices. For more than 100 years, no other ranch in Central West Texas can boast being larger today than during its initial years. So the Pitchfork Home Ranch covers 165,000 acres in Dickens and King County, near the town of Guthrie, and they've got satellite operations in Oklahoma. Uh, it's larger today than any time in history. So recently, the Pitchfork sold its Flint Hills Ranch in Kansas and purchased land in Jefferson County, Oklahoma, in 1993, the Flag Ranch operation in Wyoming was sold. At that time, the Pitchfork Ranch acquired more land in Texas, although the Pitchfork's operations have expanded and modernized. Its core business still remains the same, and that's cattle. So, the Pitchfork raises normally black and black baldy cows. Um, cattle are selected for multiple traits which include both maternal and carcass characteristics that's right i said carcass so it's the kind of meat pitchfork calves are all sourced and age verified um, and all usda process verified um, to be non-hormonally treated so they're all natural cattle they now have about 4500 mother cows grazing on the home ranch um, the Cowboys have a lot of opportunity to work the range in a manner very similar to the Cowboys who first rode for the brand. Um, Pitchfork Cowboys have always ridden good horses. The signature Pitchfork Gray is a gray horse with a black mane and tail. It has now become synonymous with the ranch, um, as synonymous with the ranch as the brand itself. Pitchfork horses have become widely known because of the success they have in, in a lot of areas as far as like roping and cutting and stuff like that, so... For over 100 years, I guess, at this point, um, the Pitchfork's profits and losses were affected really only by weather and the price of cattle, which, I mean, I would assume that. Pitchfork Ranch uh, has now diversified some into modern agricultural businesses. Other areas of the ranch's operation include oil exploration with significant fines in the Tan Hill Sands area. 
Um, it's established hunting on the ranch with guided hunts for deer, game birds, boar, and, and really just about any other kind of game. <clears throat> Farming has also been expanded in recent years to increase winter grazing and grain production. Um, the pitchfork has done a pretty good job changing with the times. You know, change is always necessary, not always fun, um, but it's never forgotten its, you know, its roots. Um, it sticks with the traditions and the ethics um, that allowed it to survive when many others failed. Um, helicopters and computer are now as common as ropes and saddles at the pitchfork. But the ranch's cowboys eat at the same table as the ranch's cowboys did nearly a century ago, which I think is really cool. So pitchfork is really a testament to adaptability. Um, it's got a diverse portfolio with cattle, oil, wind power, all that kind of stuff. Just really shows that they're preserving the integrity of the land. So that's really cool. All right. Ranch number six is located near Sarita, Texas, which is south of Kingsville in far south Texas. It's kind of near the King Ranch. There is surprisingly very little about this ranch online, but from what I can tell, it was very important in Texas history. Um, I did find some information on the Texas Historical Marker website, so here it is. In 1852, James H. Durst, son of leading Nacogdoches, Texas family, purchased 93,219 acres of land um, here, part of the La Barretta, uh, or Bar Barretta, I can't even hardly roll my R's right now, Spanish land grant. In 1878, Mary Helen Molly Durst married the, noticed, the noted Texas Ranger John Barkley Armstrong. Armstrong had served with Cap uh, Captain Leander McNelly, which if you don't know about Captain McNelly, you need to read about the Texas Rangers, and played a major role in bringing law and order to South Texas. He participated in the arrest of King Fisher and gained national fame for his capture of the notorious Texas outlaw John Wesley Harden. Armstrong moved his family to the ranch home he built there. Their close friends and neighbors were the families of Captain Richard King and Captain uh, Mifflin Kennedy, of which, you know, Kennedy County, Kingsville, King Ranch, all those guys. The ranch was an important site in the area. General Zachary Taylor had camped here prior to the Mexican War. Um, for many years, the ranch served as a stop on the stagecoach between Corpus Christi and Brownsville. Under Armstrong's guidance, the Armstrong Ranch became one of the legendary cattle ranches of Texas, and his descendants have continued the tradition of family enterprise right here in the, I guess, 21st century now. Number seven, here we go. The seventh ranch on our historical journey takes us to the Matador Ranch, which is located in Motley County, just below the Cap Rock, out in the Panhandle. Founded in 1879 by Scottish investors, it spanned 1.5 million acres and played a crucial role really in opening up um, the northwest Texas Panhandle area for settlement and agriculture. So it was started in the, it kind of started in the fall of 1878 when the banker Alfred Britton entered a partnership with Hank Campbell. Campbell purchased a small herd and range rights from a guy named Joe Browning, who in 1878 made his headquarters at the abandoned dugout at Ballard Springs in Motley County. The dugout had been built by a buffalo hunter named Andrew Jackson Ballard. Campbell's next, um, his next purchase was 8,000 Jingle Bob cattle 
that had recently been brought into the region from the Pecos, which is kind of uh, southwest Texas. Um, I'm not really sure what Jingle Bob cattle are. I, I should have looked that term up. I'm sorry, guys. Maybe I'll remind you guys later. Soon afterwards, a guy named Spotswood Lomax, what a name, Spotswood, and John Nichols of Fort Worth and Mr. Cotta of New York became associated with Britton and Campbell in financing the enterprise, which they reorganized as the Matador Cattle Company with a capital stock of $50,000. Now, that was a huge amount of money back in the day. The amount of stock suggested a brand 50M, which was used for one year and then replaced with the Matador V Lomax, or I'm sorry, it was replaced by Matador V Lomax, an enthusiast in Spanish literature, or Spanish literature, gosh, I can't talk, and then gave the ranch its name, you know, the Matador. On or in December of 1882, the Matador Cattle Company sold out to the Matador Land and Cattle Company of Dundee, Scotland. Uh, about 100,000 acres of land and 40,000 cattle located in Motley, Dickens, Cottle, and Floyd counties were involved in the sale. However, before the property was formally transferred in early 1883, Britton and Campbell, the former you know, owners, retained as the company's manager and the latter was ranch superintendent. So those guys got to stay on and help. They convinced the company's board of directors to purchase an additional 203,000 acres lying within the range and acquire another 22,000 more head of cattle. So after Campbell's resignation in 1891, the board assigned a new manager, Murdo McKenzie, who adopted a program of grading up the herd and sending steers to northern pastures for maturing. A severe drought in 1892 on the Matador Range caused the company to lease the white deer pasture of 348,000 acres, in Carson County from the Franklin Land and Cattle Company. The lease was retained until 1902, so they actually had it for a while. That year, the Matador purchased 210,000 acres of the XIT Ranch from the Capital Freehold Land and Investment Company and uh, established the Alamositas Division of the ranch along with the Canadian River and Oldham County, Texas branches. Subsequent purchase adjacent to the uh, Alamositas increased the size of the division to 800,000 acres. From 1904 until 1914, it leased another half million acres from the U.S. government on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation uh, in South Dakota, and another 150,000 acres in Canada was leased from 1905-1921. The original ranch was in, uh, was enlarged by these purchases. By 1910, the company owned 861,000 acres in Texas and had another 650,000 acres under lease. That is just absolutely crazy. So, and then it says, it goes on to say, they leased even more, another 500,000 acres in Montana, 300,000 acres in South Dakota. Anyway, just absolutely crazy. I'm not going to keep going on through all these numbers because it's just a stupid amount of land. Um, But anyway, uh, it goes on through. uh, Matador Cattle Company uh, ended up being a subsidiary of Coke Industries, K-O-C-H, um, headed by Fred Koch. Um, I believe Fred lives in Quanta, Texas still. Nope, I'm sorry. Uh, there is another guy named Fred Koch that lives out there, and that's, uh, I think, one of his grandsons. Anyway, after he died in 1967, his sons, Charles and David, took over. 
1968, uh, let's see, Sterling Varner was president of Matador Cattle Company, followed by Tom Carey in 69, West Stanford in 1975. In the early 80s, a guy named John Lincoln was president. The ranch is noted for its quail, dove, small deer, and of course, fat cattle. Uh, in 1960, the ranch launched a mesquite eradication program that accelerated in the 70s since the tree's extensive root system continued to spread and absorb what little water was available to grow for grass, and that's true. And so, um, yeah, it's it's pretty rough ground out there. So, um, yeah, they've even found... Uh, they've even found you know, during roundups, animals that were up to 10 years old that had never been branded because they never found them. That tells you how big the place is. You know, oops, we lost a whole boatload of cattle. So this ranch is adapted. Um, You know, they do constant uh, innovation. They do irrigation systems, livestock genetics. Anyway, they've just really done a good job with arid land and turning it into fertile ground. All right, ranch number eight. This is another one that I know quite a bit about. And actually, I've got a huge amount of history. I'm sorry, not that much. The next one I've got a bunch of history on. I'm not going to read all of it. Ranch number eight is the Wagner Ranch, the W.T. Wagner Ranch Estate in Vernon, Texas. It was established in 1849 by a guy named Daniel Wagner. It covered a staggering 535,000 acres. The ranch has remained family-owned for generations Um, until recently, and continues to be one of the largest private working ranches in the U.S. They do tout that they are the largest ranch under one fence, um, because other than being split up by highways, everything pretty much touches, and it's crazy. So W.T. Wagner Ranch Incorporated um, was started by Dan Wagner. He began buying land in western Wise County in 1870, which is down around Denton area. In 1873, he and his 21-year-old son, W.T., drove a herd of cattle to market in Kansas and returned with $55,000. That was a fortune at the time, guys. It was seed money to start an empire. As the land was cleared for settlement, they gradually moved to the west, buying grasslands and having holdings in six counties. Well, Dan passes away in 1902, and W.T., his son, continued to expand and operate the ranching interest until 1923 when he formed what is known today as the W.T. Wagner Estate. The W.T. Wagner Estate stretches into six counties. It's headquartered in Vernon, Texas. Its main interest to the company are ranching, oil, and approximately 26,000 acres in cultivation, which that whole 26,000 acres is actually like one, legitimately it's one 26,000 acre wheat pasture. Um, the guys that were out there said that they had four tractors and they are huge. I got to see them one day and I got to see the pasture. The pasture is like 12 miles long. It, it would take them, they would have to start on this pasture to till it and sow all the seeds. And it would take them one day to drive one loop around the pasture. Incredible. It's just crazy. So... Um, the headquarters of the ranch is known as the Zacoista. Um, it's located 13 miles south of Vernon. Um, it consists of, a, like I said, 525,000 acres. 
Um, it is the largest ranch under one fence. It employs approximately 96 people, ranging from cowboys, farmhands, oil field workers, to office staff, the ranch management. Um, they're just always working on modern techniques and everything. Um, descendants of the Wagner family did sell the ranch to the Cronky Ranches of Bozeman, Montana in 2016. Today, the W.T. Ranch or W.T. Wagner Ranch um, is managed by a guy named Sam Connolly of Bozeman. So, again, Wagner Ranch has some really, really, really cool history, and it's neat to see. The last ranch on our list is the J.A. Ranch, and I'm not going to go into the entire history because it does have a lot of history out there, but it's mostly out around Paladura Canyon, <coughs> or at least was, and it's important because of uh, Charles Goodnight. For those of y'all that don't know, he that was what the Goodnight Loving Trail was named after. Um, he implemented bringing buffalo, bison, you know, back um, into production, and we actually have some of those bison from the Wichita Mountains that we raise on our small ranch in Henrietta. Um, but yeah, the J.A. Ranch um, had a lot to do with uh, Charles Goodnight. And so it does say that it's the oldest privately owned cattle operation in the Panhandle, um, tracing back to 1876. So they got started a little earlier. But really the, the home ranch where they established is on the Prairie Dog Town Fork of the Red River, and which is really cool. We've ridden four-wheelers out there. Anyway, there's tons of history. I know we're running long, so I'm not going to go into all this history. It's just crazy, crazy. Um, but, you know, look it up. They've got, you know, 93,000 acres here, 100,000 acres there. They've got some down near Kittaquay, Texas, and Briscoe County. It's just, man, I've got a whole other page of just stuff I could read you. Um, but we're running long. So how about we just... Uh, how about we go ahead and wrap it up? What do y'all think? What do you think, actually? That's nine Texas ranches and a little bit of their history. Did I miss any? Is there something that I missed that you guys would wish? Shoot me a message. And uh, I'll include it in a future podcast. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors again, me and American Mortgage Company. Um, if you don't want to get fenced in and left out on the open plains to fend for yourself in this wild mortgage market right now, give me a shout. Keep in mind, if you know someone moving to or in Texas, send them my way. Y'all can find me at themichaelmitchell.com. That's T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. And remember, we sell dreams, not mortgages. I love making people laugh and smile and help them, you know, get into homes of their own. I do have one more quick bit of news, um, just real fast. I've got a friend of mine that's going to be coming on pretty soon. His name is Mike Badalino. Um, he was in the Air Force. He's retired out. He lives here in Wichita Falls now. Um, super cool guy. He's running for city council. And he said, man, I, I really like your podcast. I'd like to be on it. And I said, cool. I don't really want to talk politics too much. But I'd, I'd like him to talk a little bit about what inspired him to serve. Because he's running for city council. He's getting involved in a lot of things. And uh, he always says, if not me, then who? And uh, he said he got that from, from someone else, and I cannot remember the name. Mike, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, I just wanted, he just really has a servant's leader heart. And we're just going to talk a little bit about what brought him to Texas and, uh, you know, what he thinks and basically how to get involved in the community. He's a pretty inspiring guy. 
Uh, neat guy. I'm glad, glad he joined our Rotary Club. So there you go, folks. Thank you all for tuning in to Once Upon a Time in Texas. As always, remember, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great week.